We're in John chapter 7, verses 14 to 24. I'm going to read the text to us and then uh, pray and we'll, we'll dig into the text. In verse 14, John says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray. Father, we are your servants and we need your enabling to understand your word. And we want to understand your word because we want to know you more and we want to walk rightly before you. So teach us this morning your word. Enable us to see, to hear, to have open hearts and open minds to receive the truth of your word. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged and teach us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we saw last week, we've gotten into John chapter 7, uh, and Jesus' brothers were urging Jesus to go up to the temple to display his power. And what we've seen throughout John is very interesting because the entire trajectory of the gospel of John is Jesus descending all the way to the point of death to reconcile you and I, to give us right relationship with God or to offer us right relationship with God. And so the entire trajectory of the Gospel of John is Jesus descending, but everyone that Jesus encounters, nearly everyone minus the disciples, all want Jesus to go up, to grasp at power, to display power, to take power, to, to overcome with power, to overthrow with power. And in the text we saw last week, Jesus says, my time has not yet come. That is not why I have come. I have come, when he talks about my time, to die. Every time Jesus references my time, he's talking about the hour of his death, my hour of death, of laying down my power so that you might be reconciled to God, has not yet come. This feast is not the feast at which I will die. And so that's the, the introductory remarks that we get in the beginning of, of John chapter 7. When we get to verses 14, we see that Jesus did go up. Verse 10 says he went up. He went up privately. And then verse 14, it says that he went into the temple and he began to teach. Interestingly, in John 5, Jesus went into the temple and he went in as a healer. And he healed a paralytic, if you remember that story. He healed a man that had been paralyzed for 38 years on the Sabbath. Now he has gone up into the temple and he's gone up as a teacher. And pressing in the text is, will they listen? Will they hear his teaching? Will they respond to his teaching? And interestingly, the response is shock and awe and astonishment. And so that's what we're going to see this morning first and foremost, is they are shocked. They ask the question, where did he get such learning? Where did he study? 
And then Jesus is going to reveal to us some shocking information about why they missed it, why they don't understand, why they don't know who has taught him and where he comes from. And then lastly, we're going to see his gracious confrontation and rebuke to them. And so first, let's look at this. Where did he get such learning? Where they're shocked in the text. Verses 14 to 16, it says that he went up about the middle of the feast and he began to teach. In verse 15, it says, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They are shocked. The word marvel there means to be astonished or amazed. They, they cannot understand where he has been taught. The location is their concern. They're not as concerned about the content. We're not told what Jesus taught. They may have been taught, I'm sure they were concerned rather, about the content, but that's not the focus here of the text. They're shocked that he has been instructed. Their curiosity is about where he gained his learning. The word learning in the text can mean, it's translated, the grammata is the Greek word, it can mean grammar. Where did he get his letters? Where did he learn to say his ABCs? It can mean that, but it's not likely what they're focused on. The last half of the verse tells us what they're primarily concerned about. They are marveled. How is, they marveled, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? So the, the, the root of their question is, how does he have such a command of Scripture and wisdom having never studied under a specific rabbi? So here's a little context about Hebrew education. From from birth to about five, five years old, there was basic grammar was taught. ABCs, basic grammar, elementary education, the Bible, specific scripture references were used. Uh, and that happened from really birth up until five years old. From five years old till about 13, 14, 15 was where a little bit more formal education happened in the context of, of schooling. And it was always u- using the Hebrew scriptures to do moral formation. And then about 13, 14, 15, if you were a student that showed great promise, academic ability, and great promise in your ability to understand the scriptures and to be a great student, then you were sent to study under a specific rabbi. And you would then memorize the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and the Talmud. The Talmud was consisted of two different parts. It was the Mishnah and the Gemara, and the Mishnah was the oral tradition. So if the Hebrew scripture said, don't break the Sabbath, the oral tradition gave you 101 ways not to break the Sabbath. So don't break the Sabbath. You can't walk on the Sabbath. Well, how far can I walk? Well, you can only walk under a mile. Don't walk over a mile. If you walk over a mile, then you're breaking the Sabbath. That's what the Mishnah was. And then the Gemara was the, the rabbinical commentary on these things. So what Rabbi so-and-so said and what Rabbi so-and-so taught. This was the traditional Hebrew learning process. And so when they're asking the question, where did he get such learning? How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They're focusing on the fact they cannot pinpoint what rabbi he has taught under or learned under. They can't, they can't recognize the influence of his specific teacher and rabbi. And the reason is, every time a scribe or a student would speak, they always appealed to authority. They always appealed to the rabbi that instructed them. 
So, so we do this today. You guys see me, I'll quote somebody. It's somebody that I've, I've read, somebody I've referenced, somebody that's influenced me. And you can tell, you know, hey, he's read that person. Sometimes I don't quote things and I'll say things and you can tell uh, that's coming from that author that he really likes. I get a hard time. I quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer sometimes, Tim Keller sometimes. And you guys can, can pick up on that. If you've studied Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you've studied Tim Keller, then you can hear the Kellerisms and the Bonhoefferisms that come out sometimes. But that's only if you've studied those two authors. What they're revealing here in this text is they don't know who has instructed Jesus. They don't recognize his teaching. They don't know who his rabbi is, who his instructor is. And Jesus reveals in verse 16, my teaching is not mine. My teaching is from him who sent me. In other words, my rabbi is the Father. My rabbi is God himself. And what he does in that moment is he sets the hook and he reveals the reason you don't know me and the reason you don't know my teaching is because you do not know God. And that's profound given who he's talking to and where he's talking. Where is he? In the temple. Who's he teaching? The Jewish religious authorities. They are very religious, and yet they have missed God altogether. And so this is their question. This is at root what's going on here with their question. Jesus never appealed to any earthly authority. As you study the Gospel of John, what he does repeatedly is he says, truly, truly, I say to you. He doesn't ever say, Rabbi so-and-so. He never says, Tim Keller said. He says, I say to you, he speaks with a greater authority. He never appeals to an earthly authority because he's always speaking from a heavenly authority, speaking on behalf of his Father. In fact, Mark 1.22 reveals this. The, the religious leaders are, are shocked. It says it's the same word, marveled, amazed in the text. I think it says astonished in Mark 1.22. They're astonished because he does not teach like the scribes. He teaches with great authority, but not like the scribes. He doesn't appeal to an earthly authority. They cannot pinpoint his teaching. They cannot pinpoint who his instructor is. They cannot, what his teaching is, is from, where it's from. And what Jesus reveals in verse 16, he says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now this is revealing and it's condemning. It's revealing and it's condemning. The Jewish religious leaders are revealing that they don't actually know God because they don't recognize the voice of God in Jesus. This is shocking. And this is an, a very overt and explicit warning in this text to you and I that we're going to see in this text this morning that it's possible for us to be very religious but not have a relationship with God. Remember who he's talking to, the Jewish religious leaders who kept the law, who memorized the law, who obeyed the feast. What are they at? The Feast of Tabernacles, who offered up sacrifices, who offered up prayers. And yet he is challenging them in this text and revealing. They reveal and Jesus confirms that they do not have a relationship with God. 
So let's look at verse 17 and why they don't understand. And I'll be quite honest with you, this has been maybe one of the hardest studies that I've done through John so far. This text is circular in its argument, and, and I got on that circular argument this week, and I couldn't get off the hamster wheel, and it was really hard, and I hope that I don't confuse my, my prayer this morning is that he would unlock the text for us and that he would reveal uh, his word through the text. And so we're going to look at verse 17. It's such an important verse here, but it's It's answering for us why they don't understand. He says in verse 17, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The wording there is a little difficult. Let me read it one more time. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. What's Jesus saying here? In short, if you knew God, you would know me. If you had a relationship with God the Father, then you would recognize the Son of God. You would recognize the voice of God in the Son, the authority of God in the Son. You would embrace the Son. And if you embrace the Son, then you know God the Father. It's circular. Do you see it? Let's unpack this a little bit more. What he's revealing here is tragically, though they are very religious, they reveal, and Jesus confirms, they do not have a relationship with God the Father. I want you to, don't forget, anytime we study the scriptures, we cannot forget the context. Don't forget who he's speaking to in this context. How is it that they cannot have a relationship with God? These are the Jewish religious leaders. These are the scripture memorizing, law-abiding, law-loving Jews, and Yes, they are, and that's the tragedy and the warning of the text. They've been going to the altar of God, but not God himself. They've been performing religious performances, but they've missed the person of Jesus Christ, and therefore they do not have a relationship with God. This is telling, this is revealing, and this is condemning. They're very religious, but they are not in right relationship with God. They go to the temple, they perform sacrifices, they offer prayers, but the problem is they reject the Son of God. This is not the first time Jesus has leveled this charge. In John chapter 5, he did it repeatedly. Look at John chapter 5. We have a few verses here on the screen. John 5.38, John 5.40, John 5.42. He says, you don't have the word of God abiding in you. That's a pretty strong charge for people who've memorized the Old Testament. How is it that Jesus can say that they do not have the word of God abiding in them because he says, you have rejected or failed to believe the one whom God sent. You reject the son. He says in in 540 that they they don't have the life of God in them. And how is that? That's a pretty strong charge because they refuse to come to the son that they might have life. I think the worst charge or the strongest charge that he makes is in John 5, 42. You don't have the love of God within you. What do you mean we don't have the love of God? We're standing in the Feast of Tabernacles in the temple offering sacrifices. What are you talking about? We don't have the love of God in us. And he says, it's because you don't receive me, the Son of God. Jesus is setting the hook in this text in John 7, 17. They are revealing in John 7, 15 and 7, 16 that the hook is set, that they do not know the Son. And because they don't know the Son, that means and verifies they don't have a relationship with God. Without a relationship to the Son, 
You do not have a relationship to the Father. Hear the words that are being said here. This is so practical for us. John says this repeatedly throughout 1 John. One of the letters that he he wrote, he says in 1 John 2.23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father. John 1, uh, 1 John 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. John, 1 John 5.1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. John 8.42, Jesus says, if God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. This is intensely practical for you and I. This text, as as difficult as it is, it's intensely practical. We cannot miss the serious warning that's in this text. If we worship theology but miss theos, we've missed the point. What do I mean by that? Theology, theos, is the study of God. Theology is the study of God. If we worship theology but we miss God in the process, we have missed the point. If we worship the principles about God but miss the person of Jesus Christ, we do not have a relationship with God. And it's a serious warning in the text. We have to recognize that our religious performance, our knowledge about God is not what saves us. It is Jesus Christ. It is his sacrifice. It is his substitutionary death on the cross. I like, here's a reference to somebody who's influenced me. I like Paul Tripp. I read him occasionally, and he says this, Bad things happen when maturity is more defined by knowing than it is by being. Bad things happen when maturity, spiritual maturity, is, is more defined by knowing than it is by being. Danger is afloat when you come to love the ideas more than the God whom they represent and the people they're meant to set free. That's not an excuse for avoiding theology, but it is a challenge not to miss the point of theology. That we are intended to worship God, the only way that we do that is by seeing the Son of of God, Jesus. The only thing that pleases God is the Son of Jesus. The only thing that that earns us right standing before God, that that assuages his wrath, the only thing that, that does that is Jesus. To deny him, to reject him, means we do not have a relationship with God. We do not know the Father. This text is so important, we have to keep mining the depths of it and turning the diamond to see the different facets of it. I want to read the text again because it cuts both ways. What we get in this text is something marvelous. We get something that reveals unbelief and something that, that confirms and verifies true belief. Many of you, as we study through John chapter 6, we, 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 we reference several places where Jesus says, Something very difficult. He says it four times. No one comes to the Son apart from the Father giving, drawing, instructing, and granting. No one comes to the Son apart from what the Father does in a person to do that. So the question that comes up for someone seriously thinking and reading that text is how do I know? How do I know that he, I'm drawn? How do I know that he has come? How do I know that he's rescued? How do I know that he's working in my heart? Do you receive and believe 
and embrace the Son, then you know the Father. If you want to know what pleases the Father, then embrace the Son. And that's what we get in verse 17 here. We get something that cuts in both directions. And so I want us to get on the hamster wheel for just a second and see this play out. It's a circular argument, but I want us to see on the one hand this, this negative that, that this text is revealing unbelief, and then I want us to see the positive that verifies true belief. On the one hand, Jesus is saying negatively that if they knew God as well as they said they did, then they would know that Jesus' teaching overflows from the heart of the Father. Look at this argument here that's being made. So if they knew God like they said they did, if you knew God like you say, then you would know my teaching is from God. You would submit to my teaching. You would submit to the authority. You would embrace me as the Son of God. Now look at this. This is where he sets the hook. That you don't know these things, that you don't embrace the Son, that you don't submit to my teaching, reveals that you don't actually know the Father. That's the negative. That's what's being revealed here in the text. The fact that you don't recognize the Son, embrace the Son, submit to the Son, reveals that you don't know the Father. This is the condemnation of the text. This is the revelation of the text, and it's, it's tragic. And, and notice in the text, they revealed it. They said, well, where do you get that teaching? Who, who taught you? Where did that come from? By what authority are you here? They don't see, they don't believe, they don't understand who Jesus is, and therefore they don't know the Father. They're revealing that in the text. But there's also this profound good news, this other hand side of this text. Jesus is also revealing positively. It's not formed as a question. We can ask it as a question, though. In verse 17, we can ask it this way. Do you have a strong desire to please God? That's the language of this text. It, it, literally, when it says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, it, some of your translations will say, if anyone chooses to do the will of God. Uh, other translations might say, if anyone has a strong desire to please God. Literally, the, the language here means, if anyone takes pleasure in doing God's will. If anyone takes pleasure in pleasing God, you need to first understand that that does not come naturally. That the, that the mouse does not naturally chase the cat, as C.S. Lewis says. That that is first initiated and enabled by the Holy Spirit. But if you have strong desires to please the Father, then you will embrace the Son, your only means of pleasing the Father. Do you, do you see it? Do you have a strong desire to please God? Then you will see the Son as your only hope, your only means of pleasing Him. And if you see the Son as your only hope of pleasing the Father, then guess what? You will know the Father's will for your life. You will know that he desires for you to know him, and it's only through the Son. It, it, it's, it, I, I get it. I know it's circular. Here, here's, here's how it plays out. If you have a strong desire to please God, then you'll embrace the Son as your only means of pleasing him. And circularly, if you embrace Jesus as the Son of God and your only means of pleasing God, then you will know the heart and the will of God. Now get on that hamster wheel for a little bit. And, 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 and let that circulate in your mind. That's what Jesus is revealing here. Now, he said it maybe more simplistically in John 6, 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone looks, who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. To be willing to do God's will is to believe the Son. To believe the Son is 
to do God's will. I want us to talk a little bit more about this. I think we've got to understand what faith is, what faith requires. And this is, this is difficult, but it's important for us. I want you to look at this statement here. Faith requires, and I know it's a run-on sentence. You grammar Nazis in the room, please don't correct me later. I get it. I understand it. But I want you to read this sentence in your head. I'm not going to ask you to do it. We'll get stumbled over it. All I need is all you are is all I want. All I need is all you are is all I want. That, that statement is, is twofold. It, the first half of it is all I need is all you are. This is where the Holy Spirit initiates and he uses evidence to begin to work in our hearts. He begins to do this transformational act in our hearts. Faith requires us to understand propositions. Propositions means truth claims. It, it means information. It means evidence. All of John chapter 5 is evidence. Evidence, evidence, evidence. The Holy Spirit uses evidence to begin working in our hearts to transform our hearts. Ezekiel 36, 25, he removes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh and moves us to have a, a desire for the decrees and the statutes of God. He initiates this work and he does it through presenting to us two large pieces of evidence. And they're the two halves of the gospel. He presents first the insufficiency of our idols and our own self-righteousness. He presents to us the insufficiencies of our idols and our own self-righteousness. So in other words, he reveals the holiness of God to us. The fact that God is infinite and holy and we are not. That, that what we're worshiping in this world, our independence from God, will never satisfy. It, it will never lead where we think it will lead. So he presents the insufficiency of our idols and our own self-righteousness and simultaneously presents to us the evidence of Jesus's all-sufficiency. The fact that you cannot please God by law-keeping Jewish religious leaders. You can only please God by the only one who ever kept the law perfectly, my son. He reveals this. This is what's happening. This is what is happening in the text. And they are refusing to believe even the propositional information that is being presented to them. And then simultaneously, also, there's this shift. We move from propositional assent, which is the information acknowledgement. Knowledge is not enough. We've been saying that all along. But it is essential for us to do some thinking on the information that we receive. Anyone who says Christian faith doesn't involve thinking, uh, doesn't understand Christianity. We have, to, we have to use our brains. We have to wrestle with the evidence but this is where we begin to see a shift from information to allegiance. This is where the center of gravity of our lives shifts. And that's where we shift to the second half. All you are is all I want. That's desire. That's desire language. That's where we go from information to allegiance, assent to allegiance. That's where we submit our lives, submit our wills, that's where we begin to, we, we, we cast ourselves or shift the center of gravity from ourselves to Jesus. And it's Holy Spirit enabled and it results in understanding, greater understanding, more full understanding. And that understanding leads to action. Specifically, patterns of new behavior begin to emerge. We desire to please God. We desire his word, where we did not before. We desire to submit ourselves to his word. We see Jesus as not simply a teacher, but now as king. 
He has authority. I submit to him. I, I don't have authority. It's not by my will or my right or my strength or my ability. It's by him. It's him alone. These are the two halves of faith. And this is where we have to see this cannot be pulled apart, and it's why the Spirit begins to work. All I need is all you are is all I want. And guess what? When we get on the other side of faith, when we get on the other side where now it's all I want, we get greater understanding. We're like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. He's desperately all I need. And you see the circle. It begins to circle over and over again. The hamster wheel begins to go. <laughs> I, I heard this illustration, and I think it's, it's fitting here. When we talk about shifting the center of gravity, if... Uh, from our, our perspective, if you've ever done the, the, the trust fall thing at a business retreat or something like that, eyes blindfolded, arms crossed, and you're surrounded by people that you work with and all that kind of stuff, and, and then they say, okay, I want you to fall back. I want you to trust, right? I want, you to, I want you to lean back on the people that are around you. What you're doing in that moment is, is, is you're using the mental understanding that I know that my office mates and, and, and coworkers are standing around me, and I... On that information, with, in, that, in that understanding, I fall back. I shift my gravity from myself. I distrust myself. I mistrust myself, and I begin to trust them. And if I fall back, but I step back, I'm not actually trusting them. If I fall back, but I add something to, then I'm not actually trusting them. And what we find with Jesus is that in this text and, and elsewhere, there's this information that's presented to us that we must respond to. Why else is John writing? Believe, receive, embrace, grasp. What? All of this, who Jesus is, what he's come to do, why he came, the fact that you can't save yourself, that Jesus is the only means of, saving, of salvation, that you cannot reconcile yourself through your own effort and, and merit, but only through him. And what we do, with initiated by the Spirit, enabled by the Spirit, is we shift. And when we fall back into the arms of Jesus, what we find is that we were surrounded by 300-pound weightlifters that would never drop us. That his arms are sufficient. That his arms are capable. That his strength is able to save, to rescue. And this is where joy grows and in the fact that we are embraced by 300-pound weightlifters that will never drop us, we celebrate. And we say, Let's do it again. Boom. Let's do it again. Boom. I want more. And we begin to understand. Now, here's what's fascinating. What I'm describing in, in very poor detail is what, what the Christian faith, historic Christian faith, has articulated as faith. Martin Luther described it this way, that faith is information, assent, and commitment. Information, that the Holy Spirit presents information to us. This is what we call the gospel proclamation. What is happening this morning? What we do in, in, in presenting the gospel to others. There's information that's presented. We have to understand, know that information, hear that information, listen to that information. But it's not enough just simply to know there has to be personal allegiance. This is where we embrace. This is where we, we, we submit. We give our lives to he was influenced by a man named Peter Lombard, 12th century theologian, and he said four things similar to Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a good teacher, and he summarized it into three. Peter Lombard said it's information, implicit faith, assent to, assent to the information, allegiance, and then the result is joy bursting forth. 
It's, it's information, assent, allegiance, and joy bursting forth. He was influenced by an 11th century teacher, Anselm of Canterbury, and he, he said this in a sentence. So Lombard was a terrible teacher. He made it four points out of one sentence. He said, I want to understand that which I have believed in love. It's, it's a famous faith-seeking understanding. In other words, that, that I have I've cast myself on Jesus. I understand that Jesus is my only. I I, I cast myself, and I want to understand. I want to understand more. I want to know more. Interestingly, Anselm was building on Augustine, third century. Augustine said this, If you don't understand, I say believe. Understanding is the reward of faith, not the means to it. Understanding is the reward of faith, not the means to it. He goes on, he says, therefore, do not seek to understand in order to believe, but believe that you may understand. Do you know what Augustine was writing about when he wrote those very words? He's commenting on Jesus' teaching in John chapter 7, verse 17. All of these teachers, you can trace their thought process all the way back to the Son of God. And where does the Son of God trace his teaching back to? God himself. That we, we begin to by faith, understand the information, but it requires a allegiance or commitment to. That's what's happening here. You don't understand that I am from, that my teaching is from the Father because you don't know the Father. You don't want to please the Father because you reject the Son. What are they doing throughout the entire thing? The entire Gospel of John, they reject the Son. Therefore, they're rejecting God. So I said that this is positive and that there's evidence here that phrase, if anyone's will is to do God's will, or if anyone desires to please God, ask these questions. Do you have a strong desire to please God? Are you growing in your desires incrementally for the word of God, for obedience to God, for holiness before God? That does not happen apart from the initiating work of the Holy Spirit. If that is happening, if that is growing, if you're seeing Jesus as more than simply a good moral teacher, what they said in John six, uh, earlier in John 7, if you see him not as a heretic, but as actually the son of God, what they also say in John 7, is you see him not as a demon-possessed man, but as actually the son of God, and that he is also the king, then if you're growing in that understanding that there's in, this is an indication of the spirit working. Are you growing in greater understanding of your idols and dethroning them? Is your heart increasingly soft and malleable to the things of God? Do you find a new spirit, attitude, and disposition growing in you? Is your life increasingly marked by the fruit of, of the Spirit? Do you find that you have new desires and affections for the things of God? Are you seeing the truth of Jesus' words, the beauty of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross, and the willingness to then have willingness to submit to him, then you have evidence of the work of the Spirit in your life. If not, then you may be very religious but not have a relationship with God. If so, then you know the Father and you know the heart and will of God for your life. I want you to think back to the context. The context can't be missed. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the Jewish religious leaders, talking to them in the temple, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when they're offering feasts, and he tells them, you do not love God. You don't know God. Think about the strong words that he's using there. Now, what's interestingly, in, interesting about this is how Jesus then transitions and he confronts them, and he does it graciously. But the hits just keep going. Listen to what he says here. He's accused, 
They've accused him of being a liar, accused him of being a heretic, accused him of leading people astray, accused him of breaking the law. And he says, let's look at my life. And then let's look at yours. Let's look at my life. In verse 18, he says, I'm, he says the, on, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. What Jesus is doing is giving evidence for how we can know that he actually is from God and sent by God. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. What is he saying? Look at the consistency of my life, the authority of my life, the truthfulness of my life, the the beauty of my life, the sacrifice of my life. What he's doing is he's acknowledging their rabbinical teaching method. Listen, I understand that rabbis don't teach outside of authority. They always reference rabbi so-and-so. I am referencing my rabbi, God the Father. I'm speaking on behalf of him who sent me. Look at the authority by which I teach. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. Consider the fact that I am not seeking my own glory. In this, over and over again, it's, it, it's so subtle, and it, we saw it last week. If he wanted his own glory, when would he go up to the temple? When thousands of Jews were there, and he would go up, and he would Proclaim at that moment. When, when, if he wanted his own glory, he would go and 10,000 people have been fed bread and they all want to take him and by force and be king. This is not the hour. This is not the moment. This is not the reason for, for which he's come. He never acted independently of the Father. John 5, 19, 530, he says, Doing, I did nothing on my own accord. Seek, I don't seek my, my own will, but his I teach under his authority, John 7, 16. I seek the glory of the Father, John 5, 41, 7, 18, 8, 50, over and over again. My teaching is not about me. It's, it, it's, not, I, it's all for the glory of God. I'm calling you to me to see him, to have a right relationship with him. He leads no one astray from God. In fact, everything he has done has been pointing to the Father. But then in verse 19, so he says, inspect my life, inspect the consistency of my teaching. In verse 19, he says, inspect your own. Look at your own heart. Look at the own, your, your own consistency in keeping the law. Look at your own consistency in moral perfection. Consider your own heart. Consider your own life. In verse 19, he turns the tables on them and challenges them to inspect their own lives. He says, I've been radically consistent. I've been genuinely God-oriented. How about you? Contrast my life and teaching with the inconsistencies of your life and teaching. And this is what's fascinating. This is so practical because this is what we do. We live in the social media age. We compare ourselves to everybody else and not knowing that everybody else is posting stuff on social media is a lie. They've edited it. They put a filter on it. They deleted the bad picture and added the good picture. And we compare ourselves in, in so many thousands of ways. And often what we do is all depending who we compare ourselves to is all depending on our perspective. If we're If we're arrogant and prideful, who do we compare ourselves to? We don't compare ourselves to people better than us. We compare ourselves to people less than us, at least in our minds. Thank God I'm not like them. Pharisee and tax collector. We compare ourselves to people that are less than us so that we can feel better about ourselves. Or if we're radically insecure, we look at people and we go, I could never be like them. God could never love me. What is Jesus inviting them to do. Stop inspecting your life by yourselves. Stop inspecting your life by others. Start inspecting your life. Start comparing your life to the only true and righteous one, Jesus. 
And when you do that, your radical pride will be humbled by his holiness and your radical insecurity will be brought up and lifted up from despair in hope. That's the gospel. And that's what he's inviting them to do in verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? And again, the hits just keep coming here. You don't love God. The word of God's not in you. You don't, you don't have the life of God in you. And then verse 19, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. The law-abiding, law-loving, scripture-memorizing, law-keeping Jews. You are not consistent. You break it at every turn. You don't actually love it. You don't actually keep it. And this is what he's confronting them on. Their inconsistency and their breaking of it. How does he confront their inconsistency? Well, he says, none of you keeps the law. But particularly uses an example. And that, that example is in verse 22 and 23. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. It came from Abraham, Genesis 13. Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Circumcision was understood as perfecting one member of the body, one member of the body, on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry? It means enraged. Are you enraged with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body? Well, he, he's not simply addressing their breaking of the law in this text. He's, he's, he's addressing their inconsistency. You have created a hierarchy of laws. You've said that the law of circumcision is greater than the law of Sabbath. And in that, you know what you're doing? You're celebrating the perfecting of one member of a, of, of a body. I perfected a whole man's body on the Sabbath. How do you not see that that's glorious good news. It's pointing to the greater thing that I can do, which is perfecting your soul. You know why? Because you don't know the Father. You're worshiping your religion. You're work, worshiping your religious practice. You're worshiping your information, but you're not worshiping God. But then the other thing that he does, that's their inconsistency. He also addresses their actual breaking of the law. He says, why do you seek to kill me? If you go back and you look in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 5 to 7, anytime it says a prophet speaks or performs a miracle, if that prophet leads you to worship another God, little g God, leads you astray from big g God, and to worship little g gods, then you're to ignore him, stone him, and kill him. What has Jesus been doing repeatedly in the gospel of John? He has not performing miracles and leading them astray from big G God. He's leading them to big G God. He's leading them to the Father. And yet they want to kill him. On top of that, in their own law, you can't kill a man, an innocent man, without evidence, without trial, without witnesses. In fact, in, down and later in chapter 7, I love this, Nicodemus pipes his head up and he says, hey guys, you guys want to kill Jesus, but aren't you supposed to listen to him and give him a hearing and give him a trial and give him evidence? Aren't you a Galilean? Aren't you a heretic? Get out of here. He points out their breaking of the law. Jesus is pointing out their very breaking of the law in this text. I want you to think about what has happened here. Think about what Jesus has done. You don't know my teaching because you don't know God. You seek your own glory. You keep the law inconsistently. And in fact, you're lawbreakers you stand condemned. You do not have a right relationship with God. That's what's happened in this text. Now here's the glorious good news. Though they're tragically condemned, 
They are not perpetually condemned because the Son of God, their only means of pleasing God, stands right in front of them. And he calls them to listen. He invites them to hear. He says to judge rightly. He says in in verse 24, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. To judge means to decide. Don't decide based on your fickleness. Don't decide based on your subjectivity. Don't decide based on your emotions. Don't decide based on what everyone else is saying around you. Don't decide by earthly standards. Don't decide by emotions. Decide by truth. What is the truth that's standing right in front of you? Have righteous judgment or right judgment. Judge rightly. The righteous one is standing in front of you. How is it that Jesus can teach with such authority, clarity, wisdom, and truthfulness? How is it that his wisdom penetrates to the soul? Because he is instructed by God, more specifically, he is God. He's the word became flesh. Isn't that the great irony of this text? They're saying to the word of God, where'd you learn the word? (laughs) I am the word of God. And he's standing right in front of them. Why is it that our hearts are so fickle? Why is it that we're so inconsistent? Why is it that we break the laws that we set up and prop up next to the law? Why is it that we constantly are uncertain? Why is it we were constantly limited in our wisdom? Because we're instructed by our own desires, our own hearts, our own wisdoms, which are broken. Therefore, we absolutely, radically need something outside of us, something beyond us. We need objective reality, true truth, right judgment, and alien righteousness. The only place that's found outside of ourselves is Jesus Christ. And that's what he's presenting to them. That's what he's calling them to submit to. And when they look if they will hear, if they will judge rightly, if they will listen, if they will respond, embrace him. And when we look to him, we will see the perfect son of God. We will see the only one who keeps the law perfectly where we radically fail. We will see the only thing, the only means of right pleasing before God, and that's the son We'll see the perfect one. We'll see the one who keeps the law perfectly where we break it, who alone fulfills the the whole point of circumcision, which is to heal the whole body, the whole soul. We'll see the only one who offers true Sabbath rest, Jesus. So as we wrap up, let me ask some questions this morning. Do you see the inadequacy and insufficiency of your life? Do you see the insufficiency of the idols that you Worship the God of your life, your own heart, your own life, your own fickle desires. Do you see the insufficiency, the radical insufficiency of these things? The Spirit is working and calling you to then embrace the Son. To embrace the all-sufficient one, Jesus. Are you a believer this morning? Then do you see the one to which you must compare your life? Are you looking to him to bring gospel humility where there is pride? Are you looking to him to bring gospel confidence where there is despair? Are you investigating based on the truth of God's word to evaluate these desires that are happening? And do you have the full assurance and confidence that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? 
Are you looking to him to bring gospel confidence where there's despair? Are you judging your life rightly by his judgment? That's the challenge this morning that we have to consider. Let's pray.